From Sandwich Community TV, I'm Manx Taiki Magyar, and this is Blindside, the entire audio interviews that I've cut to make my short-form video documentaries. Back in the spring of 2019, I talked with Bob King, co-owner of Cafe Chu, about his experiences in Sandwich and his long restaurant career. The documentary I did was about Bob King's previous restaurant experiences, as well as his current one with Cafe Chu, and it was about the immense success he's had owning and operating restaurants within Sandwich. Before Cafe Chu, Bob King owned and operated Marshland, Sandwiches Sandwiches, and Beehive. Bob King's influence also reaches more than our mouths with his repeated engagement in local committees and public forums. Hello, my name is Bob King, and apparently these people think that I'm the king of sandwich and I'm interested in hearing my story. So I guess I would have to say it all started when I was uh, in the summer of after 10th grade. A friend of mine asked me if I would be willing to ride bikes with her and another girl to the Cape where her parents were camping and um, they didn't want the two girls riding bikes alone from Duxbury, um, but that if she could get a boy to ride along, they would agree to let, let her do it. So I said, sure. So I got on my one speed bike in Duxbury and rode all the way down Route 3A and walked our bikes over the Sagamore Bridge, got onto Route 1, which I now know was Main Street 130. And I always remembered that around the time I passed the Shami Kroll campground, something just sort of came over me and I was just completely enchanted by this town. And I really didn't even know where I was. I was just following my friend Susan, whose parents were camping, come to find out at um, Peter's Pond Campground. So, you know, we followed along and we ultimately ended up stopping at uh, Quail Hollow and got a, an apple or an orange or something and we went across the street and sat under the trees at Wing School. And I always remembered that um, little farm stand. And so we got to the campground and at the end of the weekend we put the bikes on top of the camper and went home to Duxbury. And I really never much thought about um, sandwich again except that I do remember saying to my friends while we were taking water from the uh, artesian well in Town Hall Square that this is exactly the kind of town I want to live in when I grow up. Um, so fast forward, I don't know, it must, it must have been when I was uh, 25, 1982. Um, I had graduated from college and really the, all the experience that I had had um, in my working life was in restaurants and so um, I had an English degree from the University of Massachusetts. I'd spent a semester on Nantucket and I always knew I wanted to live in a lovely old antique New England town. So um, I went looking for a restaurant and it was just kismet that a restaurant broker in Hyannis who had shown me a few things in Hyannis had said, now on your way off Cape, at the time I was living in Boston, he said, stop in Sandwich, there's this little place called Marshland and the guy's lease is gonna be up and he really wants to get out of there and has to make a decision quickly. So I did, I stopped and I thought, wow, this place I could really work with. This is cute, it's got its own parking, it's freestanding, it was unlike anything else I had been shown and it was sort of in my price range which was not very much money. I actually, I had $5,000 saved that I was gonna use to go to Europe for the summer with and, um, and then this opportunity presented itself and yet I really didn't know where I was gonna get the rest of the money that it took to buy it and as you know, one thing after another works out, I, I, I oftentimes say, I think when you set an intention for something, the, 
the world sort of cooperates with you. So I went about looking for the rest of the money and the owner financed some of it and I had an aunt that lent me some money and my brother lent me some money and I was up and running and on March 21st, 1982, I bought Marshland Restaurant. And that was really my start in sandwich and it was a much smaller, much, uh, much more quaint, I guess, town then than it is now. And um, I was really just at the right place at the right time because, you know, sandwich was prepared to grow and boy did it grow in the next 10 years. And um, so, you know, bought Marshland and um, fixed it up and tried to, you know, make it uh, more palatable. Uh, at the time that I bought it, it really didn't even have a printed menu. It was kind of odd. <laughs> it was just regular townies would come in and just say what they wanted and I don't even know how they established how much they paid for it. But we printed a menu, we hung plants, we took an old, uh, book of Audubon uh, prints and cut them out and framed them and, you know, sort of uh, collaged the walls with them. We made special boards and, um, and it, after, you know, and it wasn't long before people in town discovered that, you know, Marshland was a different place and um, so slowly but surely we built the business up and um, I would say that, so really the, the man who had sold me the restaurant, I had a deal with him to sort of pay the money that he was fronting me. Um, at the end of the second summer, and I was able to pay it off at the end of the first summer. Um, at the end of the second summer, I was able to buy a house in Sandwich, which I still live in today. And um, so it worked out really well. And in those days, um, there wasn't even a Dunkin' Donuts in Sandwich. So um, after a time, the Earls had the oil company next to Marshland, and their business office was in a little space, and they moved out to what's now Canning's, and Bob Winters, a man, a realtor in town, took over his little real estate office. And then um, I should back up. So. Can you tell us how, like, the, I think the story about how you found your house is oh. a really interesting story. Okay. Well, actually, I missed a, uh, I missed a little sp uh, space in there. So I opened Marshland, and about two years later, well, maybe it was about three, actually, it was probably about three or four years later. Um, uh, I started Sandwiches Sandwiches, which was a little sandwich shop at Russell's Corner, and it's and it's still there. Um, but I also learned the lesson of like the difference between what a business owning a business and owning a job. And while it was a good little business, it really did not afford me um, really any income once I paid everybody else to run it because I was down at Marshland and sort of paying somebody else to run Sandwiches Sandwiches and. It just didn't do that volume of business that really enabled me to make it worth my while. And ultimately, I sold it to two brothers who, did, you know, they, they were the total payroll. They, I think, did a very good job with it, and they were able to make a living because they weren't having to pay employees. And um, so that was sort of my second business in town. Um, and uh, I had bought a house in Sandwich, and it was interesting because, you know, that was another thing. I went looking for houses. And in those days, um, I was looking to spend about $50,000 on a house. It's hard to believe you could buy a house in Sandwich for $50,000 in 19, I think it was, by this time it was like 80, maybe, maybe 84. And um, Betsy Warren, a local realtor, took me out. We went to, and we looked at a lot of cottages and um, I wasn't happy with anything. And she said to me when, at the end of the day, she said, well, if you had like your dream come true, what would you want for a house? And I said, oh. That's easy, Betsy. I would love an antique house in the, in the village. 
And she said, well, let me take you over. There's one for sale. And we pulled into the house of the driveway of the house that I um, live in now. And I just looked at her and said, don't do this to me, Betsy, because I knew I was going to love it. And um, it was uh, really expensive. It was $82,000. So um, I sort of ate my heart out over it. And I figured, you know, we had agreed that, well, probably maybe by the end of the summer, I would, you know, have saved a greater amount of money uh, as a down payment because that was part of the issue. In those days, you had to put 20% down, and I didn't quite have that. So. After about a month, I'd heard that the house had sold, and I went running to Betsy and said, oh, don't tell me that that house on Summer Street sold. And she said, no, it hasn't. She said, but you really want that house? And I said, yeah, I just don't have enough for a down payment yet. And she said, well, why don't we see if the owners will write you a second mortgage? And I thought, okay. And they did. So, and that was worked out really well, as, really well, because I was able to pay that off much quicker than we had anticipated. So they were very pleased, and I was very pleased. And, I had the house I always wanted, and I've lived there ever since, and um, never wanted for more or better or bigger. It's just exactly what I always wanted in a house, so that's where I continue to live today. Um, so we go along, and then um, the little, so I was talking with the little real estate office that was next to uh, Marshland. Uh, Mr. Winters, who ran the office, decided he was going to build his own building on 6A, and so I approached the Earls, who owned the building at the time, and said, can I rent that place space as well? Because at the time, believe it or not, there wasn't even a Dunkin' Donuts in town. And we were having a real issue in our dining room with people going on their way to work, stopping in to get a cup of coffee, and the waitresses were tied up with people, getting, giving people coffees to go while there were people out at tables waiting to get waited on. And so I thought we could put a little takeout bakery and coffee shop um, on that side, in that side of the building, and it's there today. And so we did. We cut through the wall, and we installed ovens, and we made a little bakery. And in the day, um, we decided that you know there were already a, it was already a donut shop in town, and so we really focused on muffins. And um, it was incredible how many muffins we would sell. I mean, we would have somebody. We would uh, have someone come in in the afternoon, and they would uh, fill the bakery case with muffins. They would fill two rolling um, covered uh, bakery racks with trays of muffins. And then in the morning, somebody would come in. Those would all be, those would, we would open at 6 o'clock in the morning. Those would start to sell. And then somebody in the morning would start to replenish. And literally, I mean, we would sell hundreds of muffins, and in fact, I remember the Boston Globe said that our muffins were bodacious. Um, so that worked out really well, and we did that. And then in uh, 1992, the building that had been the first edition uh, became available. The uh, local bank, the Sandwich Cooperative Bank, uh, was holding it, and um, it had been abandoned, and they were looking to get it off their balance sheet. And so, um, we approached them about, you know, what's going on with that building, and there were several people that were interested in it, and um, we were very lucky that we had a reputation in town and a uh, track record, and I think that that was, it was a different time in a sense then. I think that who you were and what you did and what you had for a track record mattered in banking, and I'm not so sure that that's as big a, a you know, an, a, a part of the, the equation anymore. I think today it seems like it's all about what do you have for money? What's the dollars and cents of it, not as opposed to sort of your personal integrity or background or experience? Um, 
So they sold me that building and they sold it to me for not very much money at all. And um, we thought that was a great opportunity. In the meantime, uh, my partner Tobin had come into the business and he was running the bakery side of Marshland and I was more on the dining room side. And um, so we thought, well, this is a great opportunity. Well, you know, because we didn't own the real estate at Marshland and we could own the real estate and um, it was a you know, much bigger uh, restaurant serving lunch and dinner and had a liquor license. So we went for it and we opened uh, what we called the Beehive Tavern in 1992. And then in, by 1994, we realized that owning two restaurants was uh, just not not good for our health. And so in 1994, we sold Marshland and focused just on the Beehive Tavern. And we had a great run there. It was an extremely busy restaurant. Um, and like I said, we once again, we were in the right place at the right time. You know, with Marshland, the town was small. It was just poised to begin growing, uh, and it did. So, you know, and there wasn't a lot of other options then. So, you know, we did really well with Marshland. There were no Dunkin' Donuts. We had all that coffee biz to go business as well. And the same thing was true with um, the Beehive. When we opened the Beehive, there really weren't, you know, there was no 99 on Cape Cod. There was no, uh, there were very few, you know, even dinner restaurants um, in town or nearby. So um, that proved to be, a, you know, a lucky move for us. And um, we did that until 2004. And by 2004, we just really thought, felt that we were sort of burned out. Um, we had had a, you know, we had a long run in the restaurant business and um, we just thought it was time to take a break. So um, we ended up selling it and um, we did very well and thought we were ready to sort of simplify our lives and to maybe not be, be as busy and hectic. And, um, and then after a few years of that, um, we realized, well, we're not quite ready to live as simple a life as we thought we were and that we needed a little bit more income. And at the same time, the economy just, you know, crashed. So um, there was no money to be made in dividends. So we thought we're gonna have to make money the old fashioned way and open another restaurant. And it was around that time that I had been going to what was the Merchant Square Deli. And I just thought, wow, this space has got a lot of you know, untapped potential. It had two beautiful outdoor patios with no furniture on them. It was an authentic post and beam building. Um, it took a lot for us to build it out. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that the whole downstairs of Cafe Chu is where the prep kitchen is, and that's really where most of the work goes on. And the upstairs is really just uh, where the folks are assembling the, uh, the, the sandwiches and salads, but everything that's baked and prepped and the salad dressings and the soups and all that stuff is being done downstairs, which is why you don't see me at Cafe Chu very much because I'm stuck in the, they, they, I always jokingly say they lock me in the cellar um, while Tobin is upstairs running the front of the house. So in I think it was 2008, we um, made the commitment to buy what was the Merchant Square Deli and we took us longer than we thought to uh, get it renovated. And we opened and it's, you know, done really well and we're really happy with that. And um, it turned out to be, unfortunately, a lot more work than we had anticipated, but, um, you know, I guess nothing worth doing ever comes easy, so, um, you know, it's just been a good experience and, um, you know, it's uh, something we enjoy and I think people, we've, you know, been received very well and um, 
gotten a lot of accolades. So, you know, that's, um, it's been a, a good, good investment, I guess. Yeah, um, well, Marshland was, I always say, is the classic, new, um, is the, like, the classic American diner. Um, it, um, you know, it's, and it still is. You know, I, I think it's a concept that, you know, can, can survive and continue to always be a concept that works in restaurants because everybody's, you know, interested in that classic sort of diner style uh, restaurant. So. Um, that was that. Sandwiches, sandwiches was different in that um, we, Doug Amidon, the sign maker, made us a really wonderful sign and it enabled people to create a sandwich, which was something sort of new at the time. You could pick um, one of maybe seven breads, what kind of filling you wanted, what kind of topping you wanted, uh, what kind of spread you wanted to have put on it. So, um, and it was. It was a. It was a really a kind of a new idea then. I mean, it's now t today. It's you know. It's it's sort of more commonplace. But at the time, that was you know a, sort of a new, fresh concept of you know uh, start with the basics and create your own. Um, and then so um, the sign that you're talking about is the one inside. It's the actually pattern. still there. Yeah. It's sort of covered up, but it had little plexiglass panels that had like, you know, so there'd be like a section of breads, a section of fillings, a section of toppings, a section for spreads, we called them, and I think it's section for cheeses. And they, and the lettering was all put on plexiglass panels so that if you ran out of something, you could just take that panel down. Or if you wanted to add something, you could add a panel in. Um, and it was very attractive. Do you remember what, like, what your thought process was? Like, how did you, because most people would just make a menu. It's like, these are the same yeah. made up, and yeah. this is what you have. Right. Um, well, you know, I have never taken credit for sort of inventing the wheel. I pay attention. I, I think, you know, if you're, if you're plugged, I guess being, I'm a foodie. Mm -hmm. You know, I just read a lot about food. I have food, I have magazines. I eat out a lot. Um, I uh, pay attention. Um, those are, that's my interest. So um, I think that also in a way that's why Cafe Chew is popular because I think we have offerings that are unusual or more creative. You know, we're lucky to have Pan d'Avignon as a bakery to get great artisan breads. Um, so, you know, so with, with, you know, the, with Sandwiches Sandwiches, that was unique. That was, you know, wasn't like going into, um, you know, a sub shop where you picked the Italian or you picked the tuna or whatever. It was, you really did have the opportunity to create your own sandwich on, you know, exactly how you wanted it. And then the beehive was, you know, a completely different animal because it was, it was much more, um, rather than sort of what I would call diner style food, um, it went into really full dinners and we did um, baked seafood, we did fried seafood, we had broiled steaks and chops and we had to do a vegetable of the day and a mashed potatoes and baked potatoes and rice pilaf and chowder and soups and we still made all our own salad dressings and it was, it was, when I think back, I was so lucky to have the staff that I did because virtually all of them stuck with me for the whole 14 years that we were there. Um, because, you know, when we, when we left there and then we went to open Cafe Chew, we thought, well, this is going to be a piece of cake because it's going to be just like the cold station at, at the Beehive, you know, that, um, that 
you know, compared to the Beehive Tavern, we're not, all, all we're going to have to do is make soup and salads and sandwiches that, you know, it's like the cold station. This is going to be a piece of cake. And, you know, in the summertime, it takes four of us constantly pounding out the prep work to just keep up with the volume of food that's being sold out of that place. So it's actually turned out to be a lot more work than we had anticipated. Well, sometimes you have to run over the stoppage. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. And, um, and then, you know, something I also didn't mention is after we'd been at, Kef at uh, the Beehive for a little while, there was a little gift shop um, just before the railroad tracks on the left that is now uh, an interior store whose name slips my mind, and um, unfortunately. But um, there was a nice lady that lived, that worked there and owned it, and she um, actually, it was very famous for whirly gigs at the time. Um, there was a man in West Barnesville, and I still have one that he made. Um, we ultimately had to go to a, a company in New Hampshire, but um, you know, these whirly gigs where you might, the, the wind would blow the, the uh, propeller, and the propeller would be connected to a, a little man maybe sawing wood, or fishing a fishing line or there were probably 10 or 12 different designs and and that was kind of her claim to fame I don't know how many people remember it was like the little cranberry shop it was on the left and she always had whirly gigs out on 6a and um, and don't ask me how or why but <clears throat> somehow I ended up um, deciding we were going to open a, a gift shop in that space and uh, called the Beehive General Store so um, we jumped into that with both feet and um, went to Atlanta several times to the gift mart there and um, uh, Lance Lamborghini, uh, and, uh, who's a local builder in town, and um, Randy um, uh, Gallerani remodeled the building for us and we, you know, we spent, you know, the time that all it was being renovated, we found some great props and I think it was a really interesting shop. Um, and I think people really enjoyed it, and we initially enjoyed doing it, um, but once again, we learned the lesson that I loved to shop for, for the shop, and I loved to merchandise, um, but I really had no interest in sitting in a shop and waiting on customers. Um, it just was, I, you know, I'm, I guess I'm too hyper for that. And, um, uh, you know, so we had people that, you know, worked the shop, but, you know, I would say after about five or six years, we grew tired of that, and a friend of mine, the woman actually who had bought Marshland from me had sold it, and then she ended up buying that shop and starting an interior store, um, which she ultimately sold to the people who are there now. Um, so that was an you know that was an experience, and then um, so we went along with just the beehive, and it was you know plenty of work that's for sure, and it was very very busy, and like I said, um, after like 14 years of it, we thought you know I think we're ready for you know a change, and um, we sold it, and um, my partner Tobin went into a human services. Um, job uh, working as a house manager for a teen um, center and I ended up managing the outer bar and grill at the Wacoset Resort and after three or four seasons of that together with you know and I would just work summers um, and you know we just sort of felt like well I kind of felt at any rate that I was giving my mojo away that you know why am I working so hard for somebody else if I'm gonna you know because I really to be honest, worked harder for the resort than I think I had for myself. And um, 
it was very demanding and very, you know, very high-end, very exclusive. Uh, people spent a lot of money to stay there and had very high expectations, and um, which was great. I learned an awful lot about customer service and, um, you know, meeting those needs. But I also felt like, well, if I'm going to do this, I should be doing it for myself. And that was the other reason we sort of went seeking um, another place. And um, you know, ask and ye shall receive, and sure enough, the space that's now Cafe Chu came along, and so we um, jumped at it, and it's all turned out to be good. Don't you feel like you've kind of revitalized that? Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't want to sort of like tout, toot my own horn. I think any, I mean, I think it's testimony to um, the fact that a lot of times uh, uh, development of that type, of, you know, a merchant square needs certain anchors. And you see this in malls, you know, it's like if you don't have the anchors to sort of begin to uh, bring business in, then um, it was, it's really hard for the other businesses. And so, yeah, I think that um, the popularity of Cafe Chu has definitely, you know, we actually will have for the first time, I think, since Merchant Square was built, I think our section will have 100% occupancy. Um, the, uh, stationary store on Route 6A, um, Splash, is moving to uh, down the way next to um, Unforgettable Hair. And so I think, yeah, I think that, you know, I know that, that the people who have retail stores there have said that, you know, the fact that all of these people come to Cafe Chu will then be curious. Well, let's see, what's Wish Gift Company? What is, you know, Summer Cottage? What is Sundance? Now I'm hoping that they will also say, what is Splash? Um, and I think it's important to work with other businesses like that. You know, I will definitely promote Splash when they get, when they open so that people will know that, um, that they're there and that, you know, that doesn't mean they, it doesn't work in the opposite either, that there aren't people who will be specifically going to Splash who might say, well, since we're here, let's have lunch at Cafe Chu. So it's a very symbiotic thing. And um, I think that, you know, you want to sort of work together as a group in a situation like that. And we try to, we try to do co-op advertising together and that sort of thing. And um, yeah, it's, uh, I think, you know, it, Cafe Chu's popularity has definitely brought um, Merchant Square to life. Do you want to talk a little bit about your volunteerism? Volunteerism. Uh, it's on the topic of restaurants, okay. one thing. Okay. About, um, so I, I wanted to bring this whole thing together because mm -hmm. I heard you, you were telling me about that. I mean, I loved all those places. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing that you had not only created, I mean, Marshall mm -hmm. and San Francisco Sandwiches, Beehive were all great when you were there, and, and then they've actually now disappeared yeah. since you yeah. transferred over, except Marshland. Yeah, right. Um, and then what do you think, I mean, you mentioned a little bit before that you didn't reinvent the wheel, you kind yeah. of just tapped in, but what, what made your, your like, time? Well, you know, think? I think that um, people will oftentimes say, well, what is the formula for a successful restaurant? And, you know, I think there's three things that a successful restaurant, if they have all three of them, will definitely be successful. And one is a good location. Um, you know, people have to be able to uh, find you easily. Um, that's helpful. It's not always absolutely completely necessary because if, on the other hand, you also have good food is the second component that I think is an absolute necessity um, over even a better location. I mean, and the third thing is atmosphere. So if you have a, a if you have a, a building or a space that's interesting and atmospheric, and it has great food, 
and it has a good location, then it's kind of hard to not, it's kind of hard to lose. You know, I think sometimes you can, um, I, I, can I, I think of a, a little restaurant that I go to that's in Pine Hills, it's out in the middle of the woods. It has a terrible location, but it has great atmosphere and it has good food, so you seek it out. So like, you can almost get by with like two of those things, but if you have the three of them, then they all work really well together. And, and I think, personally, our success in the restaurant business is based a lot on the idea that we make so much uh, from scratch. That, you know, our, our, you know, we don't buy bottled salad dressings. Um, even when we had the beehive, we baked our own dinner roll, uh, which was an onion and dill roll that, you know, people love and miss. But, um, so we really focus on, we buy very little, if any, prepackaged food items that, you know, if we can make it ourselves, it's, we, usually you can make it better if you make it yourself. Uh, we do. All the baked goods at Cafe Chew are made from scratch. They're made with butter uh, rather than shortening. Um, they're made with good quality chocolate when we, when, you know, that's the case that chocolate's being used. Um, you know, uh, the breads are good quality. They're, you know, they're coming from Pan d'Avignon. So I think that, um, you know, I think that's a secret as well. I think that that quality and that, um, the difference comes through. You know, whether it's that person being conscious of it or not, um, they just know it tastes good. But I'm saying the reason I think it tastes good is because it's homemade and it's from scratch and it's um, maybe even, you know, better quality than what you, generally, than what you can buy pre-made. Pre yeah, I mean, there's, there's probably a, yeah, a clear system, like you said, because you mm -hmm. definitely have a, a yeah. salt system. Like salad dressings. I mean, I, if I go into a restaurant and I'm served a bottled salad dressing, I personally can tell immediately that this, and usually I will ask for oil and vinegar <laughs> in most restaurants, because there's an emulsifier that is, to my taste buds, just not appealing. And yet, I know what, you know, we have four salad dressings at Cafe Chew, and I know the work that it takes to produce just salad dressings well, usually at that point. Well, usually dressing, like maybe if they've made one, mm -hmm. the dressing is the one that they've made. Or yeah, yeah if, they, if any. But a lot of times, you know, all of it's just, you know, they just buy four or five or six. You know, um, we used to make a salad dressing at Marshland that we then took to the Beehive, and you know, I'm thinking of sort of bringing that one back, maybe again, because so many people, you know, it was a creamy garlic dressing, and, um, oh, yeah. and people loved it. And I just thought, well, you know, I don't want to sell a restaurant and then take their salad dressing <laughs> recipe with me. I didn't think that that was really fair. So, um, but, you know, since, um, our, since the Beehive isn't there anymore, um, you know, I don't think, I, I, I'm, I have thought about maybe reinstituting that particular oh, one again. Well, those are a little bit too much work. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, the thing is, you know, the baking is, it's, I've sort of taken that on. We had a woman that baked for us when we first opened, and she really set up the program, and I'm so grateful to her for that. Um, and, you know, for the most part, I have been doing a lot of the baking now, and um, one of the things that we've realized is you really have to assess, you know, what is, you know, you can't just bake everything. 
you know, like one of the things that I eliminated when I took over the baking was scones. And I know a lot of people miss the scones, but, you know, the fact of the matter is we'd probably only sell about eight scones a day. You know, you'd bake 12 to have enough in some days, and they never carried over, so at the end of the day, we'd give them away. And so when I took over the baking, I thought, well, why am I killing myself to make scones when I'm selling eight of them every day? You know, it's just, so that was a lesson as well, to learn how to sort of, you know, because we're not a really a bakery. We offer to baked items. We've discovered people don't want plated desserts. They want to grab a cookie or a bar or something they can carry with them out the door after they've eaten lunch and maybe eat it in the car on the ride home or back to the office. So, um, you know, and, and I think we have a really good variety. And like I said, everything is, you know, made from scratch. Our brownies are, I mean, they must have, a you know, when I make a tray of 96 brownies, I would bet that they probably have uh, close to 15 pounds of chocolate in it because I start with five, five and a half pounds of chocolate melted into four pounds of butter. Oh, no, I'm sorry, that's two trays. And then I add another 28 cups of, uh, 14 cups of chocolate chips and 14 cups of chocolate chunks to that batter. Um, so they're like, you know, fudge. Um, and, you know, I think it's a huge difference between a, a piece of brown cake it's called a brownie, and this really, you know, ultimate, you know, honestly, to die for brownie <laughs> um, that we make. Um, and those are the little, I think, the differences that you know set you set you apart. And um, you know, it, but it's a lot of work, and it's a lot of effort, and I think it's oftentimes more work and effort than a lot of people want to put in. And maybe that's why, um, you know, we do well because we do put in that work and that effort. I mean, how do you feel about when you get to see, like, you had a successful business, you passed it on, mm -hmm. and then the business yeah. is gone. How does that, oh, um, it? Yeah, um, you know, that really only happened with the beehive. Um, and that was like, that was like a phenomenal business. I mean, we were, we would open at 5 o'clock, and on a Saturday night, we would probably, we wouldn't seat people, but people would start to arrive at about 20 of 5, and we would just start taking it, you know, listing their names, because we, we couldn't fill the tables and then go out to a waitress and say, okay, you got four tables <laughs> um, all at once. You know, as it was, they maybe got five minutes between each table. So we would take names and then slowly say, okay, the Jones party for two, and I would walk them one way, and then Tobin would ask for the Smiths and take them the other way, and we would sort of, and then everybody else that started to come in would say, okay, we're just getting the folks that were here before five seated, we'll be with you in a minute, and then we'd be full at five o'clock, and, you know, and we'd be off to the races. And, um, you know, when I think back to it, I mean, of course, at the time it was stressful and it was a lot of work, but you know, in retrospect, you know, I think it was also a lot of fun, and um, I just, you know, I marvel. I mean, there were times I can remember literally like having to take people from like the middle of the restaurant over to a side dining room, and the bar between us being so full of people that I would have to take them through the kitchen to get to the side dining room because we just couldn't push our way through the bar. Um, so it was sad in a sense, you know, because um, it was so popular and it was so busy and, um, you know, I don't want to be critical, but, you know, I think some of that formula that made us successful was changed and as a result, um, you know, it just, the business just kind of dwindled off. I think also there was, you know, to be truthful, there was also a lot more competition 
than there was when we first opened. I think in every respect, um, there's, you know, each time, including with Cafe Chew. I mean, where else, in, you know, can you actually get, uh, you know, a uh, cappuccino or an espresso that's as good, a, as good as or better than Starbucks? And part of that is the fact that you have to make a $10,000 investment in a, uh, an espresso machine. You can't use one of these little push-button automatic numbers and think you're going to get the same product. And yet, once again, it's like you got to make that $10,000 investment if you want to have espresso drinks. So, um, you know, when we opened, no one else was doing that. You had to drive to Mashpee, which we did. You know, we were coffee nuts. So, um, in fact, the, the story of our coffee is funny. We were at um, Joe's in Provincetown. We were at Bank Street Coffee in uh, Harwich. We were at the Underground Cafe in Dennis, and we were at um, Bucky's in Dennis, uh, Bucky's in Dennisport. And in each time, being coffee fiends, we noticed that the coffee was really good in all four of those places, and asked, "Hey, where did you get your coffee?" And all of them said, "Indigo Coffee in Northampton." So when we opened, we knew that's where we're going to go. And you know, wonderful woman. She you know she worked up formulas for our coffees that, you know, with a blend that I think is really good. Um, I think it's the best coffee in town, you know, uh, you know no brag, just fact. Um, and, um, and I know I enjoy it myself. Uh, we were just in Vermont a few weeks ago and I bought a, went to a very well-known coffee roaster and I bought coffee and I made, I finally um, got to it the other day and I, I had to go down to Cafe Chew and get a pound of Chew Brew because I just didn't like that coffee. Um, so, um, I think that, you know, it's, you know, you just try to do what you think is the best and, um, and things work out and, um, it's usually always more work too. I do think that that's an element to it. You have to be willing to probably work harder than somebody else might be, um, in order to, you know, get it, uh, get, get people to come in. Um, we kind of knew when we opened that given that our background and the fact that we had had restaurants in the past that we could get people in based on our reputation, but that's not going to get them back. You know, if, if after they come in, it's not a good experience, that doesn't guarantee the fact that they're ever going to come back again. So, you know, we were lucky that we had that reputation in terms of getting people initially to come in, but like I said, that doesn't always get them to come back. Um, and, you know, I'm grateful for that. Uh, before and we'll move on to the, the other stuff, but just one last thing about the restaurant. Is there a reason why you've always picked sandwich or is there is a reason? Um, yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, because I'll tell you, it's incredible how many people will come in from other towns and say, oh, and I think this is probably true, that a cafe chew would work so well in our town. Why don't you come to Hingham? Why don't you come to Duxbury? Why don't you come to Plymouth or come to Marshfield? Or, you know, people from all over the place will, will, uh, will say that oftentimes, like, oh, I think this concept will work well. And, you know, I don't know. I, sandwich is, is my home, um, I guess. Uh, and I really do like, you know, I love sandwich. I love living here. I think it's a beautiful place. Um, I was uh, interviewed once for a book called I Am Cape Cod and you know one of the points that I made is that even after living here all this time, I mean what is it, almost 35 years, on a daily basis I'm still blown away by something, the beauty of something. Today it was looking over Sean Pond 
as I crossed the bandstand and the snow and the ice and the sun and the way it hit, and it was like stunning. Or I'll be driving home from Cafe Chu and I'll look out and the tide will be high and the marsh will be full and you can see the boardwalk and the dunes and it's just beautiful. Or the swans floating on twin ponds or, um, you know, so I guess, yeah, um, I guess that's maybe why I, I don't know, you know, I just have, or, you know, you, um, it's your home. yeah, it's home and also, you know, I have a, I really do have a strong belief in the idea that, you know, when you set an intention for something or a, you have a, you have a dream or an idea uh, for something and you want it to happen and you really put it out there, um, that it does. And so, um, in each instance, it wasn't that, um, you know, I knew that this is going to happen, but I wished and hoped for it, I guess, and kept my eyes and my ears open and something presents itself and you say, hey, that's, I think, what I've been looking for or what I've been thinking about. Um, and um, it's just, I, and, and I think also because, you know, you've, you have a sense that, well, you've got a reputation here. You know, you already have sort of a built-in clientele in a sense, like I said earlier, that will get people in. It won't get them back, but it will get them in. And so, um, you know, I guess we, you know, we looked at it from that perspective as well. Um, but I love Sandwich. I think it's a great town. Um, I know a lot of people here. Um, and uh, it's, my life is kind of, to be honest with you, just sort of come true in the, in the terms of how, how I always hoped or dreamed it would. You know, I ended up with the house I always wanted and never wanted for more. Uh, the businesses have always been good and thrived and provided me with a good living and um, I've made great friends here and wonderful acquaintances and, um, you know, like the old lady in Grey Gardens, uh, you know, uh, Big Edie says about her, you know, living in her house, the only way I'm leaving is feet first. <laughs> So um, I guess maybe that's why. Yeah. Right. Yep. Great partnership and uh, marriage and um, yeah, it's all everything's sort of um, worked out. I have no complaints. <laughs> it's true though. Like you said that the expectations are there now that, that when they hear that you're opening a restaurant, people expect right, that right, level right, of service and right, quality. Right. That you have a reputation. Yeah. And like you know, and that like I said, that will get them in. But if you haven't if you haven't fulfilled that, right. then they'll quickly go. Right, right. They'll there's you know um, a certain amount of it is loyalty. But I think I've always felt that you know all people people seek what they want for their for, for their needs, not for your needs. Right. You know, and um, and that's the the trick I guess is fulfilling their needs right. as well as you know what you want. Yeah. You do. You still find time to really serve the community. Yeah. Well, you know that. You know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I came to town. I literally, I had like a seven-year-old car that was paid for. <laughs> I had a like a Volkswagen uh, Jetta. No, it wasn't even a Jetta. I think it was called. I can't remember what the. It was like a this little little car. It was. I had no money. It was paid for. I had five thousand dollars saved, um, and. 
when I look back, you know, I feel like, you know, Sandwich has been very, very good to me. You know, it's coming here and starting my life here and um, my businesses here have, you know, and I do think that it's important to give back. I think that if you want to, if this is home, this is my community, I'm dug in here. This is, you know, where I plan on staying. And, um, and there's a lot of wonderful things, um, partly that you want to see preserved and enhanced. And so I'm trying to think of, I mean, I think probably the first community-minded thing I ever got involved with was uh, when the boardwalk was blown away. And um, at the time, we kind of all realized the town was really strapped for money. We had gone from one elementary school to three that weren't big enough at around the time that I think the boardwalk blew away. I want to say 91, maybe? It was 91. Yeah. Fall of 91. And, um, and we all kind of knew instinctively, where is the town ever going to get the money to fix the boardwalk? And, um, and so there were a bunch of people who I think at the same, it was, it was strange, it was like uh, Dean Coe was sort of the chair and Patrick Ellis was involved. And you know, I think, in, uh, so that was kind of the first community thing I got involved in with was the Boardwalk Reconstruction Committee. But I think the people that deserved the most credit for that were the uh, old guys who called themselves the Geezer Brigade because there were a group of you know, older guys who Essentially, other than the bridge part, which I think, which required um, by law, I think a marine construction company to come in to, to do that work of driving the piles for the, the bridge part of the boardwalk. The rest of it was all built with volunteers, these older guys, the, the geezers. And, um, and so that was sort of the first thing I think I got involved in to just help out with and to get off the ground and we sold boards and had them engraved and there was a sign maker here, Clint Young at the time, who uh, did all the engraving and, um, and um, let me think. And then I think probably the next thing was um, probably the Visitor's Services Board and that was a board that was designed to take a portion of um, room tax uh, that was collected for on the you know for the town, and uh, a part of the law at the time was that um, a certain percentage of that should go back to a promotions fund, which today has morphed into the visitor services board. But initially, it was called the promotions fund, and that was the intent, and I think it remains the intent. I know when I served on that board for about seven years, you know, our intent was to put beds and heads. You know, that if we are going to derive heads and beds, thank you. <laughs> um, if we're going to derive our income from, from room tax, then it behooves us to build that room tax revenue up. And, you know, we did that at the same time we were losing rooms. You know, the old Colony Motel went offline, the Ezra Nye House went offline, uh, Quince Tree uh, went offline. These were all bed and breakfasts or motels. So there were fewer rooms and yet, you know, we, I think, deserved some credit for helping to maintain the level of, um, of rooms tax that were still being collected by the town. Um, and initially it was a lot easier because, you know, before the internet and before websites, uh, the AAA guide was sort of like the, the gold standard. You know, that was what every motel owner, you know, would tell us is, you know, the, it's that, the Office of Travel, Massachusetts Office of Travel and Tourism also published uh, tour books and, and all of that's been taken over by the internet now, I believe. But um, in those days, those were the places that you could go and really get, um, 
bang for your buck. We also did things like we published a, uh, there was no sandwich chamber of commerce at the time, um, so we at the Visitor Services Board produced our own um, rack card for sandwich and we put them on the eastbound lanes of the Massachusetts Turnpike, we put them in the information booths coming down Route 3 in Plymouth. Um, we actually bought the website address for the chamber knowing that one day Sandwich was going to have to have its own chamber of commerce and, um, and, then, um, and then in fact I later became the president of the Thornton Burgess Society and when I did we uh, made an offer to the, the new Sandwich Chamber of Commerce to use the upstairs of the Deacon Eldridge House which housed our museum and um, some of the collection of the society and um, we were just looking for better ways to get more people to come in and visit that house as well as provide this, the Chamber of Commerce with an office space which they did not have at the time nor did they have a budget so um, we shared space with them and that sort of helped them to, to get off the ground as well as helped us to get people more people into the, the Deacon Eldridge House um, to see the exhibit that would be displayed for each summer by the Thornton Burgess Society and to visit our gift shop there. Um, so it was, I think, and that was probably uh, the biggest, or the, my, you know, the thing I'm so probably the most proud of in terms of community involvement is that I was uh, the president of the Thornton Burgess Society for seven years and it was during that time that um, we had inherited some money and we uh, used it to do a, a strategic plan for the society and that strategic plan told us that we had to either grow or die, that we had to make our site high functioning, that uh, there was too much deferred maintenance, that the typical donor would see those things and think that maybe it was perhaps not a great investment for their you know, donation. So we set out to raise uh, a million and a half dollars and it was uh, very slow going. Um, I think the Thornton Burgess Society is one of the most wonderful, uh, or was one of the most wonderful organizations in town. Mary Beers was the director of education and she was a f wonderful, fabulous asset to town. She ran wonderful programs. We did things in the school. She would do things on the site, you know, owl prowl and take kids out at night and, you know, find owls in the woods or, um, I can remember a friend's family came and uh, his niece and nephew spent a day, it was like a program where they would like scoop a bucket of water out of Smiling Pond and then put it in a dish and like study all the different life forms that could be found in that one bucket of water. And so we set out to raise the money that ultimately we did raise to build the new road and they had said, you know, this one way road in and out where people are, you know, taking their lives in their hands and when you have events it's too crowded and crazy you need to you need to change that you need to get the education department out of the damp basement and build a new education building and you know uh, take care of some mate a lot of maintenance issues and so we did and um, Jean Johnson was the director at the time and so Jean and I and Jean Schott who was the former director of Heritage Museums and Gardens had retired from there and we took him on as our director of development and a wonderful uh, board member who ended up taking over for me afterwards, Jackie Lane, came on and basically the four of us managed to raise, I, th I think when I left we'd already raised over a million dollars and then Jackie went on to, to finish it and, um, and uh, 
get the rest of the money that it took to you know make the site what it is today. Um, the and discovery yeah, the little ed education building. Um, but I don't know whether you remember, but in the old days you would go in one way and there was an old garage and you would have to back up and then go back out the same way you came in and would have to have station people at like two or three different places to say, okay, it's okay for you to come this way and now you go that way. And, and so we made it, what we did was we cut a new roadway in and we made it one way so it was like a, a loop. We uh, expanded the parking lot. We built a new building for ed where the children could go for uh, their educational programming because at the time they were really in the cellar of that building, which you know was damp and took on water and you know had issues and we were, never had enough storage anyway and we had to tear down the old barn to build this building and everything that was in that barn had to go somewhere so that ended up being uh, the basement ended up being used for more storage than classes so classes moved into that um, building and um, you know, we, uh, I think, you know, it, we did a great job of, you know, upgrading it and... Um, what, what I remember is, um, I think when I first became aware of you was um, the Herb Festival. Oh, yeah, and yeah. you used to cook the whole yes. thing. Yes, I know. Was, I know. Oh, to be young. Like yeah. <laughs> it was, and, and that was a tremendous effort because, you know, when I, what I did was, when we bought um, the Beehive, um, we didn't use any of the dishes or, you know, we, there wasn't really, we had to change out all that stuff. So I brought that stuff home to my garage and I would have herb luncheon. I did, I did that for probably about 10 years. I was literally schlepping milk crates full of plates and silverware and I think we rented the glasses and the ice from the restaurant and, you know, I would make some big luncheon and, you know, they, it was very charming, but it was, you know, physically, I don't know whether I could do it anymore. <laughs> um, it was just a lot of work for, and, and, the, and I can remember, you know, when we first did it, we would do three seatings uh, a day for two days. And, you know, it, we'd have to wash, get those dishes washed and get, you know, I think it was like an hour and a half between seatings, you know, it was like, quick, get those, you know, get the soup cups off so we can get those clean and ready for the next course. And then now get the dinner plates in and get the silverware washed. And, and it was like me and a, you know, a bunch of volunteers. Um, but we pulled it off and it was delightful. It was, you know, it was, it was you know, a wonderful time. And um, people really appreciated it. And, um, but, I, you know, I just got so busy with Cafe Chew. And like I said, I'm not the spring chicken I used to be. And um, it was a lot of physical labor as well, just schlepping all that stuff, you know. And, for a day or two, and yeah, then you know, schlepping it all back again. I found out like, that you were basically doing it for free. <laughs> <laughs> right, that was my donation, you know. Because yeah. you know, when you serve on a board, they used to say you have to give, get, or get. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was, you know, the way that I sort of gave was mm -hmm. to, I would do herb luncheon and, and a few other things. I mean, we would have teas there, or we would schmooze donors, um, you know, with a luncheon that I might put together for them. but. Um, but, you know, it was, you know, and then Jean Johnson left as the director, and then um, Judy stepped in. I mean, uh, Jean stepped in as the new director, and Jackie took over as the president, and, you know, they did continue to do a great job. But, you know, it was really a crime. That's, it's just never found those big buck donors. And, um, you know, the Thornton Bridges Society has a lot to be proud of, I think, in that regard, because it's really, it's an institution that's been, 
created off the backs of you know just everyday people with yard sales and bake sales and um, cup plates were a big um, were a big boom to the society when those were popular. That gave gave it, you know gave the society a, a really nice boost, but. Unfortunately, you know, there's, you know, unlike some of the nonprofits in town, there's just never been those people with deep pockets that have taken the interest they should in that society. But it's a small money thing, though, too. Yeah. I saw on social yeah. media, it seemed like a lot of people didn't realize that they were in yeah, dire yeah, straits. Yeah, yeah, they have they fallen into them, dire straits. I know, well, I, I, I agree. You know, I, at some point I thought, was it, is it, would it be smarter to you know, announce that to the community, to let everybody know, hey, we're in trouble? Because now what's happening is the Thornbridge Society is, and it's not a bad thing, you know, uh, the Museum of Natural History in Brewster is, is going to um, you know, join with the Thornbridge Society yeah. to become one entity. And um, you know, so, because financially, you know, I think that they were just struggling so much that they felt that that would be a better way to, to do it. And it's going to be done, I think, with a lot more volunteer hours than paid hours. So, um, you know, and I wish them the very best. Right. You know? So, let's see, what else? And then, um, the oh, and then on the planning board. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, my tenure on the planning board really started as a result of a move that the planning board had made that I thought was extremely short-sighted um, from what I knew about tourism and the impact that tourism has on our community. You know, I don't think a lot of people realize that a third of our state's income is derived from tourism and something like 70% of our region's income is derived from tourism. And a lot of people think, well, I don't have tourists in my business, so I don't rely on tourists. But the piece that they don't really always think about is, you know, the people like myself who patronize their business does. You know, I do re rely on tours and I think many, many people, whether it's wait staff or service industry people who are spending money all over town or all over the Cape are getting their income from tourists. And so at the time that I got involved with the planning board, there was a suggestion to, um, to zone all of Sandwich Village and all of Route 6A from Jarvis Street East as commercial. And I just thought that was like a, that was a really bad idea. I thought that the fact that, you know, the, the Massachusetts Office of Travel and Tourism um, tells us that the reason that people come to Boston and they come to Massachusetts for um, a visit is because they are seeking the authentic American experience. And I think that that's why people come to Sandwich. They don't come for the commercialization. You know, they come because there's a sense of authenticity here, that this is a, you know, that this is a living, breathing community of people that's sort of living a Williamsburg, if you will, you know, life. You know, these, amongst all this beautiful architecture. And, um, and you know, I felt that zoning the village commercial would like open us up to become something like Freeport, Maine. And where, you know, L.L. Bean is and what they did to their village was that very thing. And if you go there today, you know, McDonald's is in a center entrance colonial house, you know, with a wood carved, you know, uh, gold leafed arched sign. <laughs> um, so, it's, you know, I just, that and the fact that, you know, Route 6A is considered one of, the, you know, National Geographic says it's one of the 10 most scenic highways in America. 
And you know, really all you have to do is go to, like at the time I said, well, go to Orleans and look at what Orleans looks like on Route 6A, given that in the 70s they opted to make their stretch of Route 6A commercial as opposed to residential. And in, 19, I think it was 1972, the people of Sandwich said, no, we don't want to see, you know, our section of Route 6A from Jarvis Street to the town line being all commercialized. You know, if you're, if it, you know, what's there can stay, um, but, and the, um, what a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of those businesses are home-occupied businesses. And it's my feeling if you live where you do business, you're going to keep it up a little bit nicer than you are if it's just your business. Um, right, and it's, you know, and so, um, and town meeting agreed with me because <laughs> I got up and said, you know, me and a lot of other people said, this is really short-sighted. This is not a good idea. This is not going to help us. And, um, and so it was voted down and then, you know, in a way you sort of feel like, well, you've got to put your money where your mouth is, you know. So I thought, well, if I'm going to complain about the you know, the, uh, the zoning or the motivation of this board, then I should get involved in it. So um, that's what I did. And I've been doing that for about five years. And it's, it's rewarding, it's interesting. Um, and uh, I've learned a lot in the time that I've been there. And um, I enjoy it. And we'll continue to do it for a while. And, um, and then I think the only other sort of, sort of you know, community thing um, is after our town hall was finished being remodeled, uh, there was a group of people who were involved in creating, I think, the celebration for that uh, event, who then went on to be form a, uh, what's the Sandwich Town Hall uh, Preservation Board. Trust. Trust. Thank you, Paula. And um, so um, my uh, partner and I, Tobin, got involved in that, and it's a wonderful experience. Um, basically, we're charged with, um, you know, the ups a lot of people maybe don't realize this, but when you do a preservation with CPC money, you have to preserve the building back to what it was. And even though we would have maybe liked to have more office space on the second floor, the fact that the second floor was built as an auditorium, it's essentially in response to uh, the separation of church and state, because up in until that time, most town meetings were taking place in a church, and I think there was a move afoot to say we need to get, we need to separate our, our government workings from, you know, any church. So um, that auditorium was built for the purpose of town hall and also for entertainment. So there were silent movies, and the piano that was used to play um, at those silent movies was still sort of pushed to a corner of the, of the building, and, the, and there was, I think, this group um, of people, uh, John Shaw and Frank Panorfi and Patrick Ellis and I think Melinda Gallant and a bunch of people, you know, also saw the value of that piano and restoring the piano. And so we, as a time, we discovered um, that another part of our charge is to see that the main, that the town hall remains in good condition, and uh, we raised money for that and to also provide entertainment. Um, upstairs, because who at Town Hall is going to have the time for that? And yet it's this beautiful auditorium. So um, we have done things like donated lighting and sound equipment and fixed the wooden floors. And we have, you know, I think the curtains were a donation from the trust. Um, and uh, we also try to, you know, provide some entertainments up there. 
And so joining the Sandwich Town Hall um, Restoration Trust, or um, Preservation Trust, I should say, um, it's, we're online, I think it's $15 a year, and really one of the great benefits of membership is the fact that you'll get an email once a month that tells you not just something that we might be producing, but that anyone who's producing an event at Town Hall, you, it, it's a really good way to learn about it. And um, Don Bailey makes that beautiful. Yeah, and Don Bailey uh, runs, does, that web, does that website from Florida for us. He was an old, uh, he used to live in town and moved away, but um, he does a great job of maintaining a monthly newsletter that will tell you what's going on at Town Hall. Um, Another thing we discovered was that, you know, people, uh, performers really didn't want to perform to the old stand-up silent movie piano and that they wanted us, so wanted a, you know, we needed a baby grand piano or we needed to rent one every time somebody, you know, with uh, a really quality voice um, like Gene Prendergast uh, wanted to perform. Um, so lo and behold we set out to look at the idea of actually purchasing a baby grand a used baby grand somewhere and through that search and i can't remember quite how it happened but a woman uh, from down cape got in touch with us and said i have a baby grand that i would like to donate to you so we now have a baby grand piano in the town hall up in town hall uh, auditorium it's called the uh uh i'm spacing out the name of the stage the uh the Glasstown Glass stage, thank you. And um, so we have a, now we have a grand piano um, that's in place up there for uh, performers and um, that's proved to be a great asset and um, done a lot of good programming um, that's included that. So we're proud of that. And, um, and then I think that is probably it. I think that's about all of my you know, <laughs> my full song and dance. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't. Um, yeah, I know, no, no. <laughs> um, no, uh, I don't, I, I, I don't at the moment. You know, I don't, I can't, you know, I am getting older and, um, you know, the restaurant business is tough. It's a tough business. There's, you know, people don't realize it's, you know, it's a lot of work. It's not just the work, but it's also the stress of, you know, changing, changeover of employees and training and reorienting and, um, you know, that sort of thing can be, can be a lot of work. And um, I don't know. I don't know what my next act is going to be. I do feel like I have one more in me and what that's going to be like, you know, I've said before, you just sort of put it out there and the universe guides you, if you will, and, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I really, left, yeah. yeah, I don't, I don't know what it is going to be, but I'm already, I'm, I'm asking, <laughs> I'm asking the universe to tell me where to go next. Yeah. Um, it's been nine years. Yeah, right? well, almost ten. ten yeah, years. ten years. Yeah. Ten years in yep. like June. Ten years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, it was we, we. It was ten years ago, just about now that we bought it. But then we didn't get open until we, and we planned on being open for the 4th of July at the latest. And as it turned out with all the renovation we did, we didn't get open until almost the end of August. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that was. I remember the first sandwich fest I interviewed. Yes. And you were just about yeah, to we had, Yeah, we weren't even open yet. Right, um, right. When we, um, when we did that, when we, had to, you know, we, we brought a sandwich to the sandwich fest right. that I think won, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. <laughs> and we, yeah, we weren't open yet, so. Yeah, but then the following August, which was a drag because we sort of lost, 
that whole summer's business and you sort of, on Cape Cod, you know, the cycle, you really want to be a part of that, you know, whole summer cycle, so. That was a smoky um, Dutchman. Was that what it was? Yeah. Okay, yep. <laughs> and it continues on our menu today. Yeah. Well, that was the whole idea, right? That yes. You, yeah, yeah. You had, you had sandwich fest. Right. Yeah. Yep. Right. Exactly. Um, cool. I mean, I guess maybe. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it's good. I was gonna say final thoughts on like what you think sandwich needs now. Um. What, like a message you give to yeah. future restaurant owners, future um, restaurants. I think. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I know that everybody is extremely frustrated with the taxes in sandwich. And um, just as an example, you know, I pay now more per month than what I paid on a yearly basis when I bought my house. But I was very lucky that when I bought my house, I was at the beginning of my money-making years, and I wasn't a retiree who came here 20 years ago and have had to face those tax increases. But um, I think that um, as someone who's lived here, I understand why our taxes are the way that they are, and I wish more people did, as opposed to just sort of pointing fingers and thinking that there's some kind of malfeasance or uh, dirty dealing that's gone on that's created, you know, the highest taxes on the Cape, um, uh, and that also, um, the, you know, while I'm definitely not opposed to seeing uh, whatever commercial growth we have the potential to have in town, which isn't as great as I think a lot of people think. I mean, there's a lot, we've had a lot of build out. I mean, as I said, when I came here in 1982, if I drove down one end, if I drove around town and just pointed to you at what wasn't here, you would be amazed. So this notion that we're somehow anti-business or that we don't have, we haven't welcomed business, I think that's a fallacy. Um, I, the only business that I can think of that, you know, Sandwich ever sort of turned away was Cape Cod potato chips because they were going to locate at the back of the industrial park and the folks in Kensington Drive were going to have to be smelling fried potatoes all day. And I think that that was something that was, you know, a part of why you, what the word protective and protective zoning bylaws means, you know, that. Well, there was this Costco was planning on coming to town, but they pulled out. You know, that, that's another thing. A lot of people think, oh, the, you know, they were driven out or, you know. What happened was actually, if you remember, there were two people killed at exit two before the days when we had traffic lights. Yes. And when, Cost, yeah, when Costco was coming to town, yeah. there were no, I mean, I had, I had a friend who used to visit regularly and he would, you know, and I lived very close to exit two. And he would get off at exit three because he said, I can't get out, of, I can't get off the road. I can't get off the ramp because 130 is so busy. So I think, I don't know whether this is what drove Costco away, but I know that Costco had themselves said 7,000 cars a day would come to their store. And I think that was, what happens in that regard is with the Cape Cod Commission, you have a regional planning um, department that says, if you're going to do, affect this road in these ways, you know, we as a town should not have to absorb what it's going to, the infrastructure changes that are going to have to take place to accommodate you, right. you should have to provide us with those changes because they're, you know, in the same way that, I mean, if, if you look at that road in terms of how Mashpee Commons, for example, has affected, you know, life in, San, in Sandwich and South Sandwich and getting off at exit two and getting, if you live in South Sandwich 
at rush hour on a Friday night with all the people that are going to New Seabury and Mashpee Commons, you know, um, you know that's that's a regional effect. Yeah, they, right, they have you know things that have you know have impacts on a regional basis. Um, I don't know. I think that that's. But I think that part of you know what I try to re, try to 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 sort of I guess promote is the notion that um, you know it would be great for more commercial development. By all means, it would be especially great if we had some small startup companies that paid really great salaries as opposed to the service industry that um, tourism provides. But tourism is all we've got right now. It's the goose that's laying the golden egg. And sometimes I think when you have suggestions, you have to, you know, Costa Rica has somebody at every meeting from tourism department who says, is how is your, because we know we rely so heavily on tourism, what, how is the idea that you have going to affect that industry? And I think sometimes we can be very short-sighted about, you know, how, you know, making sure we, we grow, but that we also, you know, preserve and protect what we've got. So we, and pay, we pay for the preservation of beauty, which brings people here. Right. And it's, to me, I've, like I've always said, the beautiful symbiotic thing between tourism and living here is, yeah, it's frustrating to have the cars and all the rest of it, but the reason that they come here is the same reason that we want to live here. You know, the same qualities that the tourism comes to park in the village and marvel at the architecture or go for a walk on the canal or go down to the boardwalk or drive Route 6A, you know, um, are the same things that we all love about living here. So, you know, I just worry sometimes that there's this notion that people think that there's the possibility that they could maybe even not have to pay taxes if there's enough commercial development. And that's just, you know, that's just not realistic. You know, the, you know, the, the taxes, I mean, the, it's just not realistic. That's just not going to happen. You know, there's, there's just not that much undeveloped land that you can say, oh yeah, if I may wave a magic wand and boom, it were all developed, none of us would have to pay any more taxes. That's never going to happen. In fact, I've asked you know, our town assessor about that. What if I could wave a magic wand and everything were built out to its best, highest purpose? And um, how much would you know, our taxes go down as a consequence overnight? And um, he said, you'd be lucky if they went down 5%. So my cry has become, you know, if you're spending $5,000 a year on your property taxes, um, what are you willing to, what changes are you willing to see have happen in order to save $500? Right. You know, and, um, you know, not that I scoff at $500, but on the other hand, I think, you know, as we go forward, we want to be careful about, you know, everybody gives lip service to the notion of preserving and protecting you know, our um, assets, um, our historic assets, and our, which are in part our commercial assets because they're what's bringing those tourists down. Um, and yet, there's, you know, they'll come up with ideas like let's commercialize Route 6A, let's commercialize the, one of the 10 most scenic highways in America, or let's, you know, let's change Sandwich Village to Freeport, Maine, and have, you know, a business in every house instead of, um, you know, instead of homes, that's a neighborhood that's like sort of a living museum in a sense. 
Um, you know, I live in the village. People walk up and down the street all the time. I mean, I can't tell you how many times on a summer day people will pay, and I live on a side street, will just be passing and peeking through the hedge, looking at people's gardens or looking, and they will just say, I can't believe, you know, that this is sort of real. Because we're spoiled. We, you know, we see this stuff every day. We, or we've grown up in New England, but, you know, I have relatives and friends from the Midwest who come all the time and are just, they're just astounded by how beautiful and historic and preserved um, sandwich is. Like so, yeah, it is. So, I think that you know, while you know we all want as much tax relief as we can get, we also you know don't want to shoot the you know the goose that's laying the golden egg. And I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Bob King currently lives and works in Sandwich with his partner Tobin Bell. Cafe Chew is located in the Merchant Square in downtown Sandwich. It is open year-round and running strong. Be sure to say hi to Bob and Tobin next time you're at Chew. Blindside is a Sandwich Community TV podcast. Subscribe to us on your favorite platform or visit us directly at www.sandwichcommunitytv.org so you can stay up to date with all the newest content. Thanks for listening.